Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Victoria Coates, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, and served as a deputy, deputy national security advisor for the Middle East and Northern Africa in the Trump administration, join us to discuss Biden and Israel, whether the alliance, Dr. Coates will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Victoria Coates. Stacey, thank you very much uh, to you and everyone who uh, participates in the Middle East Forum, obviously a wonderful institution from which I've learned so much over the years. And I think this is a, a very fraught moment to discuss the US-Israel alliance. Uh, it's something I've been thinking a great deal about recently because coming up in 2023, we will have the 75th anniversary of the, of the US-Israel alliance. Uh, the United States having been one of the, the first to recognize uh, Israel 11 minutes after the establishment of the Jewish state. And as I always say to our Israeli friends, I'm sorry, we were a little late, uh, but, one of the more hopeful thoughts that I've I've had uh, recently is that you know 75 years ago the notion that the statement that Israel is the United States' greatest ally in the Middle East would have seemed uh, notional. It would have seemed unrealistic, and now that's that's a simple fact. And we also have the wonderful developments that have occurred over the course of the last year and a half in the form of the Abraham Accords. And that's something I wanted to focus on in my remarks. I was, was honored to play a very small part in that process. Uh, it was certainly a, a team effort throughout the Trump administration. And we were discussing it actually last night and how in the 2017, 2018 timeframe, we had very much been of the mindset, the traditional mindset that I, we had to get a deal with the Palestinians and the Israelis before we could move on to broader peace deals in the Middle East. Uh, and we tried quite honestly and in good faith to come up with a, a, a solid offer for the Palestinians, but they simply would not engage. And it is tragic for the Palestinian people because they were not well served by their leadership during a time when that leadership actually had some leverage over the Arab world because the Arabs wanted to normalize with the Israelis uh, and they wanted to get a resolution to the Palestinian issue. So it was really the mo moment of maximum leverage for the Palestinians, but the leadership squandered it. Uh, the Palestinian people are now in a much weaker place because in the end, the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco decided that the Palestinians didn't have a veto over their foreign policy and that the benefits of peace with Israel was going to massively outweigh uh, any potential uh, backlash from the Palestinians and that they, did, they didn't see a path forward with them. So now, tragically, as I said, for the Palestinian people, I think the region has really moved on from that issue as much as the current Biden administration might try to put that genie back in the bottle and make it a central issue for the region, the region isn't having it. And uh, I was on recent travel to both Bahrain and UAE as well as, as Israel uh, last month. And one story I wanted to share, I was with an Israeli American friend uh, a guy who'd grown up in, in New York, made Aliyah to Israel about 13 years ago with his wife and, and children, and he had never been east of the Jordan River. Uh, and, and he runs an investment group in Jerusalem, so wanted to go to Manama and, and Abu Dhabi and, and you know meet some potential new partners, so we did that. 
And when we were in Bahrain in Manama, we went to the Shuk and he actually bought full Arab dress and walked around in it. Um, and you know, you've had this moment of thinking, what's what's going to happen? And what happened was absolutely nothing. Everybody laughed and sort of congratulated him. And the only people who were upset were the the people at our hotel were who were upset with him because he hadn't brought it home to be pressed properly before he wore it. Uh, and it was just a really a really warming moment uh, that 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 the Bahrainis understood that he was sort of paying them a compliment. They got the joke, and he felt perfectly comfortable. Uh, doing that. So unimaginable two years ago, really wonderful, wonderful progress in the region. And I think we will continue to see those ties between Israel and, and countries that have historically been uh, great allies of the United States continue to grow, at least in the private sector. And my current feeling is that the politicians should as much as possible just stay out of it. Uh, let private companies and individuals establish relationships, let the people of the region see the enormous benefits to this cooperation. Uh, so that is all very positive for Israel's role in the, in the region. It should be positive for the United States creating connectivity between Israel and our historic allies. Unfortunately, we're seeing a complete reversal then of that policy from the current administration, which is not interested in the Gulf. Uh, it, it does not seem to like this, uh, the developments of the Abraham Accords. Uh, that's why I'm hoping that we can just have some benign neglect from them, that they won't mess with them. But I'm, I'm deeply concerned because uh, you know, the United States has made this historic investment in Israel. It's, it's been a wonderful investment. We've gotten a wonderful return on it. Uh, but at, at this point, we, I think we are at risk of squandering it and squandering the advances we've made. And that uh, is gonna come in the form of, of something that won't come to no surprise to anyone on this webinar in the form of a potential re-entry into a version of the joint uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, the Obama nuclear deal with Iran from 2015, which President Trump quite rightly, in my opinion, withdrew in 2018. Uh, and uh, we now have the, the Middle East team for the Biden administration uh, trying to negotiate some return to that deal. Uh, in Vienna. And uh, I'm sure you've all been watching. It's, it's sort of like Lucy in the football. Every time the United States comes to the table and makes an offer, the Iranians pull the football away and, and set new uh, conditions, new requests, demands. Obviously, uh, you know, you, the regime in Iran is under tremendous internal pressure. This should be a moment when we have maximum leverage over them, given the fact that the country is, is literally falling apart. They have a water crisis. They have an environmental crisis. They're running out of foreign currency. Uh, this should be the moment the United States, if, if we thought a deal was possible, which I'm not sure it is, uh, an actual deal, a good faith deal, uh, that we should have maximum leverage, but we're acting like we have to beg them to come to the table. And unfortunately, given the uh, extreme acceleration in enrichment activities that has gone on over the first year of the Biden administration, you know, I fear we're going to wind up in the position where that genie will be out of the bottle, that the Iranians can't unlearn uh, this this nuclear uh, nuclear science and the problem we have then is they will have the capability to get a nuclear weapon in a period of days or weeks, and is that all that different 
from actually possessing the weapon itself. I think, un unfortunately, from the Israeli perspective, it, it's not. That once they have the capability, we will have gone around the bend, we will be at the point of no return, uh, because you know that then the, the actual possession of the bomb becomes somewhat academic. And unfortunately, the Biden administration does seem to be able to stovepipe those things that they don't they don't think that that the capability to get a bomb is the equivalent of having the bomb itself. So they seem to think they have more time for negotiation. And, you know, the question then before the government of Israel is, is how long are they going to give this process, uh, especially given the apparent intransigence of the Iranian side. So. This is a deeply, deeply dangerous time, I fear, uh, for the alliance. We obviously have a, a new government in Israel right now, which uh, is, is somewhat unstable in its, in its makeup. And that's complicating uh, their decision-making process as well. And then I think they have very justified concerns with where, where the, uh, the sort of the heads of the Biden administration are, if they are prioritizing the alliance or if they are prioritizing getting into uh, some sort of a deal with a nation that, that the Jewish state considers an existential threat to its existence. So very, very concerning on those lines. Um, I think, you know, we, as we go into the new year and the midterm elections in the United States, which obviously are being watched extremely closely, in the region uh, and and beyond, of course, here at home as well. But that 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 the if the prospect of a political change in the United States, uh, I think, will affect regional decision making. You know, I, what the Iranians will will project in the in you know if they think that they're facing a Republican Congress uh, this time next year, and then potentially a Republican president in two years. Uh, you know, I would I would worry that they would accelerate their activities at this point, seeing this as as their moment of of maximum uh, opportunity. And then the last topic I wanted to touch on in in my remarks uh, is is this notion that because we we as the United States face a generational threat in the form of the People's Republic of China, a statement with which I I strongly agree, uh, that we should be harboring our resources turning away from the Middle East and to focus on the Pacific and China. I think that's a Hobson's choice because if you are dealing with issues of great power competition with either China or Russia, where is the place that both uh, Russia and China are, are deeply focused and interested in, and that's the Middle East. And particularly for China, that's because they are so energy uh, so energy vulnerable, and they don't have the enormous resources and blessings that in terms of, of natural resources and energy resources that the United States has. And so they, they have to have access to the Middle East. And so I think from a US perspective, that should suggest that we be very, very focused on the region, uh, that we maximize the relationship with Israel, and that we also then leverage that relationship to have increased influence on, on the Gulf, not because we require those energy resources anymore, but because we know that China requires those energy resources. And so that can be a point of leverage for us. I mean, one of the things we worked on in the Trump administration was coming up with some sort of alternative to OPEC. So the Saudis and, and the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis don't have to partner with the Russians and the Venezuelans and the Iran Iranians in OPEC, but rather could come up with a new mechanism 
to uh, stabilize energy markets, which would be a enormous, again, point of leverage of, for us with, with China. So I think as we approach the China threat, we can't turn away from the Middle East. Uh, and as I always say, you can, you can pivot away from the Middle East, but it won't pivot away from you. And so uh, I think the, the notion that pulling resources and, uh, and military assets and, and literally attention out of the region is somehow gonna improve our status with China is, is delusional and uh, will only create problems down the road. So the, those were the key points I wanted to make, uh, the Abraham Accords, the Iran deal, the competition with China, uh, and I would be delighted to answer any questions that you might have. Wonderful, thank you so much. Uh, the first one in from Jeffrey Sheff. If after the 2022 elections, uh, the Republicans control the Congress, can Congress prevent the administration from pursuing its current course? Well, it, it, it's an excellent question. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, the, having been a, a staffer in Congress in the 2015-2016 timeframe, uh, you know, that you are limited in what you can do. But I think the key point to make is that if the, uh, if the Biden administration does go back into some version of the JCPOA, if they, as the Obama administration did not, if they do not pass it through the Senate as a treaty, then it is not binding. Uh, the, the government of the United States has not given its word uh, it, unless you pass, uh, pass that document through the Senate. The executive branch cannot enter into uh, an agreement like that. So that's one key point. The other is uh, you know, the, the movement of the US Embassy to uh, Jerusalem from Tel Aviv was something that was initiated by the Congress in 1994 with the Jerusalem Recognition Act and then passed by successive co uh, Congresses until uh, President Trump decided not to issue yet another waiver and, and actually moved the embassy. So that's the kind of action that Congress can take to support the U.S.-Israel relationship in the event that the Biden administration is not supportive. Thank you so much. For Murray Feldman, this may be a tough one, but is there an, is any of the negativism from the <laughs> negativity from the U.S. due to anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism, or is this purely political? No, I think I think that is an enormous and growing concern. And one of our key initiatives in, at the Center for Security Policy is to combat anti-Semitism globally, but then also domestically. And uh, I think, you know, particularly around the Gaza uh, violence this spring, we saw a very, very disturbing outbreak of anti-Semitism in the United States, in which just Jews, regardless of what passport they held, were attacked. Uh, you know, on the streets of Los Angeles and streets of, of New York, as well as it, in European capitals as well. And and, you know, I think we can sort of fall into a little bit of a trap that we, we assume that anti-Semitism kind of begins and ends with the Holocaust. Of course, no. There's a much much longer history of it. And I think you know, if we use "never forget" as a kind of just a catch-all phrase. You know, in a way that's a cop out. And I am very concerned by also what we're seeing out of some members of Congress who seem to think it's it's somehow fashionable uh, to to dabble in anti-Semitism and and we cannot let that be normalized. Uh, and we that needs to be called out and and exposed for the evil that it is. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Isaac Cohen asked, provided Israel has the capability to destroy Iranian nuclear sites, how would you predict Biden would react if Israel attacks Iran? That that's basically you know that's the million dollar question right now because and I know uh, colleagues in Israel are grappling with it as well. Uh, you know they they have traditionally been uh, of the opinion that you know they combat Hamas and Hezbollah and, and Iran's regional proxies and that maybe the United States should be the one who confronts Iran proper. Uh, that was certainly uh, much more the attitude of, of, of the Trump administration. Uh, you know, President Trump was very, very clear that he was not going to permit uh, you know, the Iranians to get to the point where they were capable of getting, getting a bomb. And you know, he proved himself uh, ready to take action when, when action was warranted. And uh, you know, my, my concern is that in a number of our national security institutions, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, there is a sort of pervasive feeling that the Israelis are trigger happy and might somehow drag us into another war in the Middle East that it is, is not warranted. Well, of course, we've proven ourselves perfectly capable of dragging ourselves into wars in the Middle East, uh, warranted or not. So I, I, I've never felt that that was that was warranted. But the, the issue is, is if that's where the Biden administration tendencies are, it will be reinforced by the institutional tendencies of our national security apparatus. And you know, I, I worry that they would not be uh, fully supportive of uh, a, a preemptive Israeli strike, which is, is in my view, very much a self-defense action. Um, so I, I, I'm deeply concerned about that. Thank you so much. And a follow-up on that from Jeff Sheff again. Uh, doesn't the term alliance imply a partnership of equals uh, with, with the US supplying Israel with the advanced arm armaments? Uh, to face Iran, mustn't they? They rely a little bit on Biden and the U.S. Well, that I mean, that certainly traditionally has been the case, and uh, you know, one of the things that's always been very encouraging is that that the the uh, what I refer to as a security. Uh, arrangement uh, between the United States and Israel has gotten robust bipartisan support from the from the Congress. Uh, you know, we're currently in year five or six of the most recent ten-year uh, memorandum of understanding, which was, I think, valuably negotiated by the Biden administration, or I mean, the Obama administration rather. And we'll need to start negotiations on the next ten-year MOU. Uh, at some point in the next in the next few years, and that's that's something that that folks who are interested in this issue should keep a very close eye on. Um, and and I would very much, Jeffrey, see this as an investment. I mean, the United States has gotten a huge amount out of it. Uh, if you just look at missile defense, Iron Dome obviously is a proprietary uh, Israeli technology, uh, but the. Uh, the next generations, the uh, uh, David Sling, which is my favorite, of course, because I wrote a book called David Sling, which was a coincidence, uh, but that makes it my, my favorite pet. But then also Arrow 2 and 3, which is uh, against ballistic missiles. The, the, that technology is shared. Those are joint programs between Raphael and, and Raytheon. And so you know, that, that is technology that benefits us, that keeps Americans uh, safe as well. And I think that is enormously important uh, for us. And then just in terms of, of regional security, you know, one of the things we've seen over the course, the course of the last year are joint exercises 
with the United States, the Israelis, and then uh, the Emirates and the Bahrainis, particularly uh, naval exercises, that is an enormous uh, power projector for us uh, and a force multiplier. And so, you know, the more we can integrate Israel into that war into that world, the more security benefits we reap. So, you know, are we exact equals? No, but uh, at this point, the Israelis like to refer to themselves as the little brother. Uh, one of the points I like to make to them is, you know, in, in U.S. News and World Report does an annual uh, ranking of, of of countries, and they, you know, they were number eighteen most recently with a bullet, and for a country of nine million people, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so I think they can they can surpass Japan and other, you know, traditional allies of the United States in terms of power projector projection. Uh, I'm sorry, Japan, I didn't mean to pick on you there. Uh, but but I think, you know, Israel now punches hugely above its weight. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I put so much value in the alliance. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, Taffy Gould asks, are there sufficient Democrats in Congress who will ignore their leadership and vote against the new JCPOA deal? I think that there are uh, for the sort of cold hard reality that this is deeply unpopular. Uh, there are enough uh, Americans who are, who are as old as I am who can remember back to 1979 and the hostage crisis and all of the other really terrible things that Iran has done, that this regime has done, I should make clear, uh, over the course of the last 40 plus years. I mean, they are a, a, a died in the wool enemy of the United States and the American people can feel that. They know it instinctively. And so, you know, that that's the sort of thing where if you are a, you know, Bob Menendez or Joe Manchin, uh, you know, this is this is going to be politically toxic for you to support any any deal. And you, you do need two thirds of the Senate. So you would actually what they would need to do is that need to peel off some number of Republicans. And I can't imagine any Republican supporting uh, what what it would be likely to come out of, out of Vienna at this point. So. I, th I think it is a, a cold reality that they can't pass it, uh, pass whatever they're, they're planning. So they will have to go back to the United Nations as they did with the JCPOA. And I would just send the message to, to every, everyone, the Iranians included, any private industry that thinks it might be a good idea to invest in Iran, that there is an excellent chance that this would be uh, torn up on day one of a Republican administration you know, in January of 2025. And so you would you would want to be very, very cautious about potentially uh, having the sanctions come back into place. Understood, thank you. Uh, David Eisen asks, with North Korea at a point of great, with a great deal of the population starving, do you think there's a possibility that Iran could be sending crude and nuclear weapons there for them to test? That that has always been an enormous concern. There there is a again pervasive uh, assumption on the part of a lot of our national security apparatus that North Korea and Iran will not cooperate on a nuclear weapon. Uh, I I think that is just because we haven't uncovered evidence of it necessarily doesn't mean it's not happening. And and when the North Koreans uh, tested a small scale uh, nuke in, I want to say the spring of. 2018, it might've been 2017, and time is sort of melding together post-pandemic. Uh, but once they did that, you know, in, in a way, 
this all became academic because then it's it's a decision on the part of the Iranian regime that they want a nuclear weapon. Now, if I was getting a nuclear weapon, I probably wouldn't go to the North Koreans just because their their stuff tends not to work terribly well. Uh, but you know they have that option, and you know the 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 possibility that that the North Koreans either with or without the tacit permission of Beijing might engage in that kind of proliferation is is a deep concern. Uh, it's similar to the relationship with Venezuela. We don't have a lot of clarity between uh, Iran and Venezuela. We don't have a lot of clarity in that. There's certainly uh, there's a lot of grounds for collusion and, and bad behavior in partnership between those, those types of countries. And so something definitely to keep a very close eye on. Thank you so much. And switching gears a little bit, Dr. Kenneth Gross asks, how much is the anti-fossil fuel position of the Biden administration influencing their fading from engaging more with OPEC and the related Abraham Accords? Yeah, that, that has been one of the, the most bizarre uh, spectacles of, of the, the last year. Uh, I mean, one of, I think, President Trump's rightfully proudest achievements, and I was, was honored to serve for a year in the Department of Energy and, and witness this firsthand, was American uh, energy independence, and you know, going from being a energy dependent country to a, a country that is a net exporter. Uh, when I was in Saudi Arabia for a number of weeks in the fall of 2020, uh, I met with with their oil minister, uh, Prince Abdulaziz, and and I told him, you know, look, I'm I'm here as a competitor, and I can be a friendly competitor. Uh, but, you know, we, we are, we are battling for market share and, you know, this is a new conversation. This is not a conversation we would have had 20 years ago. And it gives the United States enormous flexibility and leverage. And I say that as someone who is also deeply concerned about environmental issues. And one of the things the Department of Energy takes the lead on is, uh, is, is environmental issues, new technologies, and, you know, we, the, R&D budget of, of DOE dwarfs anything else in the, in the world. And, you know, I think the United States can and should be the leader in uh, the energy transition. But I mean, my, my sort of catchphrase for that is, you know, if we're in the brown energy phase right now and we want to get to the green, we're going to have to go through blue. And blue involves natural gas, it involves hydrogen, it involves uh, civil nuclear, all of these things uh, through which we can robustly fuel ourselves and our allies. Uh, and the Emirates and the Saudis are, de are also deeply interested in this, and Israel is a leader in a lot of this technology. So rather than uh, you know, basically cut off our noses despite our faces, as we're seeing the Europeans do, and bear in mind in late September, as Boris Johnson was going to the United Nations General Assembly to you know, proclaim the, you know, the, the climate crisis that was going to dwarf all other security concerns, he had to call up the French and ask them to come over and fire up one of his dormant coal plants because they were running out of power. And so we have the unsightly uh, spectacle of during the Glasgow climate uh, summit last month, European emissions spiking because they had to re uh, revert to coal and ask Vladimir Putin to ship them more coal by train. I mean, it was like the 19th century called and wanted its energy policy back. So, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying we are abdicating a enormous advantage here uh, by making uh, our domestic production more expensive uh, and by also supporting what I see as extremely counterproductive uh, 
actions by some activists, boards of directors of some of our major and, and smaller energy companies, which are strongly resisting any new investments uh, in oil or natural gas, which means you know we're okay now. We're we're sort of buffered from the global uh, energy crisis, as is Israel because of of Israel's natural gas resources. But I, I'm worried we're taking actions now that we, we won't be able to recover from down the road. So really a befuddling uh, policy from my perspective. Very much so. Thank you so much. And in our last few moments here, can you just summarize and, and give us some of your policy recommendations for the points you've made? Sure. And I mean, I just to sort of revert to that, I mean, the, the, the OPEC discussion was is, is a particularly interesting one because, you know, on the one hand, you have President Biden demonizing the Saudis, calling them a pariah country, refusing to talk to the crown prince. Uh, and then on the other hand, demanding that they uh, pump more oil to reduce gas prices in the United States and that somehow the, the Saudis are responsible for getting U.S. workers uh, to their jobs, it, it, it's, it's divorced from reality. And so, you know, my recommendation, and, and certainly I think there's a lot of room to work with, with the Congress, is that, that we do need a reset in terms of, of our understanding of reality. And if, you know, on, on an issue like climate, this, this notion that we can somehow persuade the People's Republic of China to be a partner of climate issues is, is, is just false. And we have the administration currently lobbying the Congress to not pass uh, Senator Rubio's Uyghur uh, legislation on the grounds that it will annoy the PRC and the PRC won't, won't deal on climate. Well, guess what? They're not going to deal on climate. They don't want to. They've reneged on every promise they have made and, and they, they don't consider it a top priority, nor do they think they should in any way constrain their behavior to get to a climate deal. So my, my basic policy rec recommendation is we, we have to deal with the world we have, not the world we want to have. And in terms of the topic of this webinar, you know, huge advantage we have is this wonderful 75 year history with Israel. And, you know, that this is alliance, this alliance is, is precious, it's enormously productive, it's central to our regional security, and then also to our future. Because if you want to partner on high tech, uh, issues and, and security issues, you, you really can't do much better than Israel. And so, so I think uh, supporting that every way we can, obviously the Middle East Forum does wonderful work in this, uh, in this area, something the Center for Security Policy you know, enjoys partnering with you on, that, that that's what we can do uh, until hopefully our, our fortunes change in, in 2024. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And before we go, can you let our viewers know where we can find some more of your work? Yes. Uh, the, the center's website uh, is securefreedom.com. I have a or .org, actually, uh, but I have an author page there. If you just search my name, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Victoria Coates. If, uh, so you can get some of my, my musings and thoughts there as well. Uh, but thank you very much for that. Of course. And thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your analysis. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Stacey. Of course. And unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. For viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.